Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. Today, we have a sponsored episode brought to you by Fire Hydrant. And Ryan, we're going to talk about the worst place you've ever been paged on a call. You used to take a laptop out with you to the bar every once in a while, or was that your friend? That was my friend. I used to take my friend out who would uh, have a laptop with him. And, you know, occasionally he'd have to duck through and get into a, you know, a command line interface and fix something. Yeah. I was at a jujitsu gym once where a guy would stop like every 15 minutes in the middle of training and check his phone and then occasionally run outside and do something all sweaty. So today we are excited to get the chance to chat with Robert Ross, who is the CEO and co-founder over at Fire Hydrant. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So for folks who are listening, before we dive into some of the more specific questions real quick, tell us just a little bit about yourself, how you got into the world of software, and how did you ended up starting and, and running this company? Yeah. So when I was uh, 12 years old, I was actually pretty bored one day, and uh, I had just moved to a city didn't really have any friends in that city and typed in how to make a website back in 2003. And that was uh, kind of the start, you know, learned all the greatness of HTML and CSS and JavaScript at a, the ripe age of 12 years old. And uh, that was the, the beginnings of an obsession, I would say. And ever since then, I've had the opportunity to work at a lot of great companies and great individuals and learn a lot and been doing it for over 20 years now. Two thirds of my life, I've been writing code almost every single day, I think. Cool. So one of the things you, we were talking about in the intro call was you accidentally became a CEO. Can you talk about that? <laughs> I did accidentally become a CEO. So I used to be an on-call engineer at a number of, of companies and being on call has a lot of downsides. Like, I don't know if I can actually think of a single upside, maybe getting like an extra day off or something. but. Whenever I was paged, it would be kind of a frantic uh, process to try to figure out what, what do I do if it's early in the morning, late at night at a bar? What do I do right now? Do I have to create a channel for this? Do I have to create a bridge? What do I have to do? All I, all I really want to do is solve the problem. Right. I don't know who to assign even. And so that problem was acute enough for me to start building something on the side of which is now Fire Hydrant. And mm -hmm. it was a purely selfish thing, building this tool and maybe leveraged my admin privileges in Slack a little too much at my previous <laughs> job to install my own bot that I was building on, on nights and weekends. And that kind of led to, I would get up really early and work on it and I'd go to work and I'd go back home from work, continue to work on it. I even brought my laptop on vacations and was working on it from the beach while sipping a margarita or something. and. Mm -hmm. It just became like a very fun thing for me to build. And eventually, this doesn't happen, like meeting a VC and getting funding without looking for it. Like, that's not the story that you commonly hear, but it's, it's what happened and early on in Fire Hydrant's life when it was still just a side project. I met a great investor here in New York City. They were looking at the space. And through that process, they asked the VP of engineering at my job, I was at Namely HR at the time. Hey, what do you think about you know instant response and site reliability and these tools and bots for it? Right, right. And he said, yeah, it's cool. One of my coworkers built this for fun. And that was me. Uh, so a couple months later, there was a, a C corporation and a million and a half dollars in a bank account. Never seen that amount of money in my entire life. And <laughs> that was when I was minted accidentally as a CEO. Very cool. 
So, you know, there's a lot of ideas around managing instance, particularly on who gets the alerts, dev, DevOps, SRE. Is there a right answer? Does FireHydrant have a thesis statement along with the technology that you've been building? That's a good question. Yeah, I think that the thesis we have is you should have assigned owners of services. We think that the best way to build software, manage software, and, and keep it reliable is to put the people that build that software on call and largely make them the quality of that software all the way through to the customer. So for us, what we like to build, what we like to solve is let's make it really easy for service owners to get to the, the front line of an incident, I guess I would say, as quickly as possible. Because I think mm -hmm. a lot of the time, if a customer comes in and says, I can't log in, or I can't check out, or, or whatever the issue is, you kind of have to think about how does that information flow down to the people that would know how to best resolve that incident. Mm. And if a customer comes in and says, I can't log in, the next layer down is maybe it's like an OAuth service, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of use that service entry in a database, Excel spreadsheet, whatever it is, to then find the team that owns it. And you go, oh, Core Services owns this application. I'm going to bring that team into an incident to look into this and resolve it, as opposed to expecting a, an SRV team, a NOC team, an incident team, whatever you think is going to work for you. Systems are getting too complex, in my opinion, to be able mm -hmm. to put one single team on the line for incidents. Um, so I, I really think that people should be moving towards service ownership. It has a skin in the game, and I think that's a good way to build software. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always some idea on, on triaging, you know, incidents. That's you send it to SRE or somebody else who can find who owns it. But like you said, finding that isn't as easy. You know, at my last job, I had to build out the sort of spreadsheet that had all the ownership stuff for services. And I built it out because I needed it. It's like, it's not that easy to find who is there to fix this, right? The way I explain it with a metaphor is like, if there's a fire, I live in New York City, so there's, you know, I constantly hear fire trucks. If you call 911 to report an incident, mm -hmm. what's the first thing I ask you? You know, like, what's your emergency and where are you? Right. And the reason that they need those two pieces of information is that they can determine the severity of it and who's the best person to dispatch to you and send to you. If I call the fire department right now or I call 911, they send a fire truck to my building for some reason. They're not going to send me the one in Manhattan. I live in Brooklyn. They're going to send the one that's around the corner from me. Why? They know the neighborhood. They're the closest to the problem. They, they can get there the fastest and solve the problem the fastest. Service ownership is just kind of a, a representation of that real world example, I think. Mm -hmm. So how do you apply that to alerting? How do you not have like, you know, some on-call DevOps guy or whoever's most junior have to take it at two in the morning? <laughs> That's a fair question. I think that one of the first things that teams should be doing is tagging alerts more to the functionality that's broken, uh, which then can be resolved into the service that's broken, which then can be resolved into the team that owns that service. And I kind of think of it as like DNS and like you're kind of thinking of, okay, this is the functionality that's broken. And what's the, you know, the next address, if that's like a C name for functionality, where is it point to next? And it's like, okay, it's this service, and then it points to. So for alerts, if we're thinking about how an alert 
kind of comes across a system, it's usually from a monitoring tool of some sort. Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> I probably say that, and then there's probably people going, well, not over here. A lot of companies also have customer reports as like the dominant right. way that they learn about incidents. But <laughs> whatever the tool is, there's going to be some you know, web hook or email or something that goes into an alerting tool. And in that payload, I think it's important to include what is the application that's broken and why. And then your alerting system can kind of do some of the heavy lifting around, well, I'm going to figure out which functionality that is in your service catalog to which services to, again, all the way down to the team. And then who's on call for that team? I think that one of the problems I've had in the past as an on-call engineer is that the tools we were using didn't have the concept that was like a team and the who's on call for that team. It's kind of more at the global level of the organization. And that's not really how I think a tool should should work anymore. Right. And that, that global on-call can't actually fix the problem if it's code, right? Yeah. I mean, not always. Not always, right? Especially at systems at a sufficient scale. Mm-hmm. So. Obviously, you all deal with the sort of incident management stuff. Once you have the alert out and it gets to the right person, you know, how does somebody go about resolving that that incident in a sort of methodical way instead of just being like, all right, what do I do now? I think that you have to have a very simple entry point to declaring an incident. If you have an alert and your phone is going off, it shouldn't really matter what the alert is to declare an incident, in my opinion. It should be always, if I receive an alert, whether it's a manual alert, I notice something as I'm clicking around a website, customer success reports something to me in a direct message in Slack. It shouldn't matter. It should always be the same way of managing and declaring that incident. So whatever tool you're using, obviously I have my favorite, but it should be really easy to have a consistent way to declare that incident. Mm-hmm. And that's that was one of the biggest reasons that I started this on the side and was building this on the beach, is I wanted to be able to type a slash command mm-hmm. into a chat system that I could say new. <laughs> and it would ask me, what's the name of the incident? What environment? What service? Go. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter where the entry point of the notification about that incident was, I could still Mm -hmm. declare it the same way. And when you reduce that cognitive load, and you make it really easy, and you remove questions that people may ask during that declaration process, it kind of opens the door to having a system where anyone can declare an incident, Mm -hmm. because you have made it just so simple. Right? I like the like, break glass, red button methodology. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting, you know, to hear you talk about what is the command line interface and that you had built bots? What do you think about, you know, the possibility of using an LLM type technology to, you know, further boost this? So being able to speak to it in a more natural way, like you said, then it's open to less technical users and maybe to engage back and forth across scenarios and have the bot, you know, have some agency to solve some problems for you. Yeah, I think that is a world that we will see in the near future, honestly, because for a non-technical person, that's a very common way for a lot of companies to declare incidents still is from customers notifying your team. Mm-hmm. So being able to say, customer is reporting that, again, using the same example, customer is reporting they can't log in, they've tried all of these 
methods and here's a screenshot. Well, an LLM can process that pretty quickly and go, it's a SEV one, it's on this surface area of the application right. mm-hmm. and declare it for you with all the correct properties filled out. And I think it can get more and more advanced and it can start to build onto itself where based on severities of the past that you have opened, we have folks that have tens of thousands of incidents in our tool. Mm-hmm. That's a big training set for that company mm. to eventually help them determine which severity and priority an incident should be. Right, right. So, you know, you you were the incident engineer or incident response. What's the worst place you ever got an alert? And what was the sort of incident that that made you start building something? <laughs> so there's two incidents in my career that I can... Uh, respond with here so i actually i didn't go to college but i did do this weird thing during like the college years when i was 20 years old i joined the workforce when i was 18 right out of high school and i did this weird thing in the summers i did drum corps international which is basically marching band on steroids i played trumpet it's very competitive you have to audition and they're all nonprofit organizations and you travel by bus around the country and perform it's a very very strange thing Netflix, I imagine at some point we'll do like a special on this. <laughs> and rehearsals are very long. And I had asked for a sabbatical one year to do this activity of mine, uh, <laughs> marching band. And I was rehearsing and we were in the middle of California, dead summer heat. And I got paged. They were like, we need you to help fix us, <laughs> fix something. <laughs> so I had to put my instrument down during <laughs> rehearsal <laughs> and I had to go to the gym on very shoddy Wi-Fi in 2012 on this like high school gym in the middle of California farmland and SSH into a box and figure out what was going on. And then I, you know, mitigated it, went about my day, went back to rehearsal. And that was a weird place to be paged was during marching band rehearsal, I think. But the incident that definitely sparked the idea for, for Fire Hydrant was I was on call And I was working at this company, major cloud provider, and we had an incident where tales old as time, a database got dropped. And it was every trope about incidents that you can think about. It was a database being dropped. It was Friday. It was 5.30 p.m. on a Friday. And then to really round out all of this, it was a weekend where they were doing network maintenance in the office. So at 6 p.m., The network turned off in the office (laughs) and all of the people in the office had to go down to this like secondary room with like a big table in it. But this was a major response. This was a huge incident, right? Mm -hmm. It was like front page of Hacker News. Like this was a very, very big incident. And all of us in this room, there's like 14 of us, some were sitting on the ground, some had chairs. We had folks on a Google Meet and it was like kind of, chaotic experience, honestly, for an incident. And it was just this experience that if there was a tool that could have helped us put all the right people in the room, get all of the other folks that were also on call that weren't in that room to know about this incident because there was actually another person that got paged and ran the same command on accident that then took down a read replica. And it was like (laughs) if Firehydrant existed at that moment, they would have known and they wouldn't have accidentally taken down one of the read replicas. Our status page would have been updated faster. And we would have had like a, a timeline of this whole thing to do a retrospective after the fact. And 
it was kind of a chaotic uh, moment. And a, a lot of the folks that I worked with and that were in that room, many of them close now with me as well, still to this day, they all kind of came to me. And this was even before my last job. They've come to me and be like, that was the incident that like started fire hydrant, <laughs> right? And I'm like, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Without a doubt, that was, that was the start. Cool. That's amazing. And what's in the name? Did we discuss that? Like, what's the provenance of that and what's the play there? So the play on Fire Hydrant, the name comes from whenever I was on call and responding to an incident. If like someone came and was, you know, maybe just trying to banter with me about something or asking me a question about some other thing, and I was in the middle of an incident, I would say, I can't talk right now, I'm fighting a fire. That was kind of the nomenclature that everyone... Uh, and the team used and what a lot of other organizations use as well is I'm fighting a fire. Mm-hmm. And so playing on that, if that's the nomenclature you use, well, what do you use to help fight a fire, a, a fire hydrant? So mm-hmm. that's where the name comes gotcha. from. You're always at the ready to fight the fire now. That's right. Exactly. Make yes. it, make it always, easier. You can always hook up. <laughs> so the holiday season's coming up, right? That's that's another time where incidents are worse, right? Try to have code freezes and everybody's off on vacation. So can we talk a little bit about the holiday code freezes and release moratoriums and what's what happens around incident management then? Yeah, so for moratoriums, there's a certain class of businesses that will stop doing code deploys during the holiday season. I've actually kind of gone back and forth on whether or not that's the right idea. If you should be stopping code deploys entirely for the holidays, does that introduce another class of incident that you've just never experienced because you've always deployed? For me, that the answer was yes. We had a memory leak. We didn't know about it because it was so slow, but we didn't deploy for two weeks. So eventually things tipped over because these right. processes were, they were never restarting. So eventually we had an incident anyways because we weren't deploying. And then there's other cases where change is the most common catalyst of an incident. So the idea is, you know, you stop deploying because 80% of incidents come from change anyways. Mm-hmm. I think that the incident management shouldn't change mm-hmm. because if it does, you're likely to do something uncharacteristic and maybe make something worse than it has been in the past. But I do go back and forth. I would say that for some folks, it does make actually a lot of sense to stop deploying. Like most retailers are going to stop deploying around the holiday season because you know, any second of downtime on Black Friday or, mm-hmm. you know, the whatever the other <laughs> random days we've classified as days <laughs> to spend a lot of money now. Right. If you're down during those moments, that's a lot of money lost. And there's some other organizations that, you know, treat deployments as part of the process. And if you stop doing that, then maybe you actually just cause a different incident. So I think it's you got to figure out what your risk tolerance is. We are going into the holiday season. We are going to see a lot of people go into moratoriums. And if you're going to do that, I think spend time on figuring out your incident management if you don't have a good process. Right. Yeah. And run those services for a couple of weeks. Make sure there's no big memory leaks. Yes. Start now. <laughs> yeah. 50% off was a finicky one. incidents. <laughs> Great. So, you know, Fire Hydrant is, has been, you know, the incident management tool. Are you doing anything about alerting? Yeah, we are. Recently, we've We've opened up the waitlist for a new feature we're building called Signals. And Signals is our our answer to what we think a modern alerting tool should do. We talked a lot in this episode about ownership, being able to bring teams into incidents much more efficiently. And you know, how do you route alerts 
correctly? How do you get the right fire department to come to your building? And and Signals is kind of designed to answer that. We've we've made it all team based. It's all attached to services, and we've made it so that it's also fair pricing. We think that the alerting space is is fairly, you know, expensive. It's a it's a very large line item, even for us. And we even paid for uh, an offsite to continue working on this functionality by canceling our alerting provider and you know, getting twenty thousand dollars back in our own pockets. So. We're excited. I, I think it's really fun for me personally as someone that carried carries uh, mm-hmm. a, a pager for a long time. And it's cool to be able to solve a problem that we've experienced for a, a long time ourselves. Nice. Yeah. It's always nice when, you know, somebody is solving their own problems, right? 100%. Those are the best tools, I think. Those are the best tools. Yeah. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. Let's shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and shared a little knowledge or expressed their curiosity. A great question badge awarded 10 hours ago to Tim Dim. How can I flush GPU memory using CUDA if a physical reset is unavailable? Appreciate it, Tim. Thanks for the question. Over 300,000 people have checked it out and there is an answer. So something folks can look into. As always, I am Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can hit me up on X at Ben Popper. You can email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the program, leave us a rating and a review because it really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And uh, if you would like to holler at your boy on Twitter, my uh, name is Arthur Donovan there. And I'm Robert Ross. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. You can find me on x.com slash Bobby Tables after the old XKCD comic. <laughs> and you can learn more about Fire Hydrant at firehydrant.com. Solid handle. Love it. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.